early afternoon, Friday, November 14, 2003, near Lawrence, Kansas. Two Douglas County Sheriff's deputies conduct a welfare check at an isolated farmhouse. They find the scene of a bloody struggle in the living room. A woman's body lies face up on the floor. She is brutally beaten and stabbed multiple times. She appears to have been dead about a day. As the deputies search the house, they find a little girl's room filled with toys and books. The little girl cannot be found. Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of horrific violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I am not currently a resident at any of our prisons, nor am I an expert in forensics or legal matters or podcasting. I may think I'm an expert in lots of things, but truly, I'm just a true crime fan who researches and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me about true crime with you. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. The murdered woman is Carmen Ross, formerly Ross Dashmurray, age 40. She is a lawyer and has a four-year-old daughter, Helen. They have lived in the rented farmhouse for about three months. The address of the house is 1860 East 1150 Road. If you are familiar with the Lawrence area, that's just north of Interstate 70 in a rural area. The charming house is still there. Baldwin Creek runs by to the north, and there are sprawling fields to the south. It's easy to picture Andy Griffith's Aunt Bee sitting on the front porch there, shelling black-eyed peas. It's hard to picture a horrifying murder 
in such a serene setting. Carmen Danielle Ross was born September 12, 1963, in Marion, Indiana, to Danny and Judy Ross. She was the oldest of four daughters. Her mother describes her in the present tense on the 48 Hours episode about this case. She's bubbly. She's fun to be around. She makes the room warm. She's the sunshine. Looking at her picture, she's bright-eyed and attractive and looks like someone who would be fun to talk to. She went to Ohio State University. There she met Dr. Thomas Edward Murray, one of her professors, seven years her senior. A romance developed between the two. Listeners, if you're at least 30 years old, having a relationship with someone seven years older is not a very big deal. But at age 20, that age gap is a bit of a red flag, especially if the guy is one of your professors. I'd be worried about control issues, and Carmen's family did have some reservations, but they were ultimately won over, and the couple married in 1985. Carmen graduated law school in 1988, and the couple moved to Manhattan, Kansas. That's a town fondly known in Kansas as the Little Apple. It's the home of Kansas State University, where Thomas was an English professor with linguistics as his area of expertise. Carmen practiced as an attorney in Manhattan, but soon found the law to be an unsatisfying career. I can see how someone as sociable and free-spirited as Carmen might find a legal career stuffy and stifling. Some tension developed in the marriage over whether to have children. Before they married, Thomas had apparently agreed with Carmen about having a family. But over the years, he had decided he didn't want children. He was angry with her when she became pregnant in 1998. However, he seemed reconciled to the situation when daughter Helen was born. His students relate cute stories about his daughter that he liked to tell his classes. Unfortunately, Thomas and Helen continued to drift apart. This is predictable too. Babies seldom improve a bad marriage. While Thomas was quite happy moving up the ladder in academia at K-State doing what he loved, Carmen struggled with what she wanted to do with her life. Although she loved being a mother, she also felt that life might be passing her by. As her best friend said, she felt as if she was living a life that just didn't fit very well with how she felt about things and how she believed. It sounds cliche, but she wanted so much to help people, and she felt as if she wasn't doing that in the way that her life was playing out. 
After quitting her job as a Manhattan City prosecutor, Carmen began working as a legal mediator. Carmen often described herself as a recovering attorney who thought there were better ways than the law to help people resolve conflicts. She also developed a passion for New Age healing, becoming deeply involved in a movement named Consegrity, a word coined by Dr. Mary Lynch, a physician who had become disillusioned with traditional medicine. I took a little dive down into this quackery. Consegrity from consciousness. Tensegrity, the ability to withstand tension and pressure. Consilience, the all-knowing aspect of us. According to Dr. Lynch, when all is said and done, the energy field is all of it. We're a field that contains a body-mind. And when the field slows its vibration, it literally becomes our cellular tissues. But it's all energy and space, and mostly space. And that space is our unmanifested potential. It is all that we could be if we were not what we are. We are the result of our inherited patterns. And we know that we operate on less than 40% of our DNA right now because the rest of it is stuck. You clear your DNA and you're actually clearing your father's DNA and your son's DNA. So your gift you give others as that DNA opens up is immense. Consegrity is not a doing technique. It is a technique in which the therapist is taken to certain words by the client that in turn connects the client's energy field back with their DNA. The therapist then is doing nothing but being a mirror for the client's DNA. When the DNA kicks on, it knows exactly what to do to heal. This is pretty much claptrap, but I can see how it might be appealing to somebody in Carmen's pressure cooker situation. She decided to become a certified practitioner affiliated with Dr. Lynch's program. This was one of the final nails in the marriage coffin. Needless to say, Thomas is less than thrilled with Carmen's new career interest. Imagine trying to explain to your English department colleagues at a conservative university your wife's latest career choice, consegrity. When Carmen develops a new love interest, the marriage is over. Thomas and Carmen divorce in June 2003. They maintain a shared joint custody arrangement with respect to their four-year-old daughter, Helen. This civilized veneer cracks on November 13th, 2003. The living room walls of Carmen's farmhouse are spattered in blood. Clearly, 
a life and death struggle had taken place there. Carmen is barefoot, dressed in blue jeans and a sweater. A basket of folded laundry sits on the floor. Blood has pooled near the body. The detective's first impression is that Carmen might have surprised a burglar. However, there are no signs that the house has been ransacked or that any valuables have been taken. And Carmen's car is still in the driveway. There are no signs of sexual assault. Plus, the savage attack indicates a very personal rage against the victim herself. The blood at the scene tells the story. It appears that Carmen tried to crawl under the coffee table after being stunned by the first blows to the head. The table is upended. A trail of blood shows that Carmen was dragged away from the front of the house to be stabbed repeatedly. A boning knife from the set of Wolfgang Pup knives is missing from the kitchen. The Douglas County Coroner, Dr. Eric Mitchell, who was involved in our last case, will testify later that the victim was unconscious for some minutes after many savage blows to the head with a blunt instrument. The first stab wound was to the shoulder blade. Then the victim was turned over and the rest of the stabs were to the throat area. If you look at a boning knife, the blade is curved back and not very wide. As in many stabbings, it is likely that the killer would be cut while doing the stabbing. I'm sure the forensic people are hoping to find the murderer's blood at the scene. Soon, the major case squad, known as the M Squad, is called in. In Kansas, M squads are formed to put resources from different law enforcement jurisdictions together. The result is better investigations. In the case we discussed last week, the investigation was conducted mainly by a small rural county sheriff's office with few resources and little murder experience. The result was a half-assed investigation and a rush to trial without adequate preparation. That is not the case here. Listeners, I don't want to be the person who always criticizes the police in hindsight. Then it's always easy to second guess. That said, I don't think this investigation was perfect either, and I'll voice some concerns later. However, I think it was very thorough and well documented. Douglas County, where Lawrence is, and Riley County, where Manhattan is, law enforcement agencies, and the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, and the Kansas State University Police will all work together well on the investigation. Unlike in our last case, trial preparation will be very professional, deliberate, and strategic. 
it will be almost a year before anyone is charged. Detectives soon learn that the request for the welfare check was called in to the sheriff by Larry Lima, a San Diego social worker who is Carmen's fiance. Lima tells them that Carmen's daughter, Helen, should be with her father, Thomas Murray, in Manhattan. When Larry is informed of the murder, he tells officers that they should look at Tom as the prime suspect. Lima is quickly dismissed as a suspect when police verify that he was in San Diego that week. They also learn of the contentious custody dispute between Carmen and Thomas. With forensics analysts poring over the crime scene, detectives turn their attention to getting the ex-husband in for questioning and the little girl safe. After law enforcement speak with others of Carmen's friends and family, it is clear that they should hone in on the ex-husband. There is some concern that Carmen's little daughter may be in danger, and a SWAT team is actually alerted to the possibility of some kind of hostage situation. This is where I question the behavior of law enforcement a little. From what I can gather, the K-State police verify that Dr. Murray is in his office on campus. There is a vehicle in the driveway of his home that belongs to Helen's babysitter. Not an expert in law enforcement, but right then, I would have told the campus police to notify the professor that something has happened to his ex-wife and the police would like to speak to him. That way you have him secure and the daughter safe. That's not what happens. When he leaves, local police follow him discreetly to his house. He goes in and the sitter leaves. Detectives observe him looking out the window frequently and the SWAT team and even a sniper are put in place in case a hostage situation develops. Finally at 7.30 p.m. detectives knock on the door. Murray answers and is noticeably distraught when notified of Carmen's death. However, he doesn't ask what happened. Okay, not that I want to help murderers be better murderers, but at least pretend you don't know what happened. Friends get to the house to look after Helen. Thomas agrees to come down to the police station on his own. Just a note to all ex-spouses out there. When your ex is murdered, don't talk to the police without a lawyer. You're already the prime suspect, and they already think you're guilty. So lawyer up. As we'll see, Dr. Thomas Murray probably kicks himself every day 
because he thought he was too smart to need a lawyer. The investigation continues for nearly a year. It zeroes in immediately on Dr. Murray. Unfortunately, little physical evidence pointing to him is found. The murder weapons are never found. A luminol test on the interior of Dr. Murray's dark red Saturn does light up, indicating the possible presence of blood, but no blood is ultimately found. A tiny spot of blood is found in Carmen's downstairs bathroom. A DNA expert will testify only that Thomas cannot be ruled out as the source of the blood. But unfortunately, no really convincing physical evidence is ever found. So the case being assembled by the prosecution is essentially a circumstantial one. As we have seen in other Kansas cases, the fact that prosecutors called county attorneys in Kansas are elected officials sometimes affects the course of cases. This is somewhat true in this case as well. The current county attorney has developed a reputation for only taking to trial the easy cases. This is not an easy case, and it becomes an issue during the campaign season of 2004. Finally, facing mounting pressure from her opponent, Carmen's family, and the public, the county attorney has Murray arrested on October 5th, 2004. He hires two top-notch Kansas defense attorneys, Pedro Irigonagaray. That's a tough name. I called his office just to make sure I would say it right. It sounded like his receptionist has to explain how to say it to a lot of people. And his co-counsel was Robert V-I-E-Y-E. The county attorney is defeated in the election, and her successor is a local lawyer who has never tried a jury case. To this new guy's credit, he recognizes that he needs help with such a prof high-profile case, and respected former prosecutor Thomas Bath is hired to head up the prosecution for the Murray case. The trial begins in February 2005. It receives national news coverage. 48 hours is allowed to place a camera in the courtroom. The prosecution prevent, presents the following timeline of the events. November 11, 2003. Carmen Ross and her ex-husband, Professor Thomas E. Murray, participate in child custody mediation. That's the Tuesday before Carmen is murdered on Friday morning. Ross tells Murray she's moving to California and plans to fight him for custody of their four-year-old daughter. Since the divorce, the couple had a pretty informal shared joint custody arrangement with respect to their daughter. 
from all I could find, it sounds like Carmen was often wanting to change days and hours that Marie had Helen with him, and that was annoying to him. And that's understandable, I think. He's a professor, and professors do have some flexibility with their schedule, but stability and a set schedule are important too, especially during the school year. Carmen's also taken Helen out to California a few times during these months, and she seems not to appreciate how upsetting this is to Thomas. I think the threat to move to California is what drives Thomas over the edge. Thursday, November 13th, 2003, in the early morning hours, Carmen ends a telephone conversation with her fiancé, Larry Lima, of San Diego. The babysitter in Manhattan estimates that Thomas Murray dropped off Helen at about 8.15 or 8.20 a.m., which was 20 or 30 minutes earlier than usual. In his statements to police, Murray says he dropped Helen off at the babysitter's at 8.45. At 8.30 a.m., a neighbor sees Carmen sweeping her front porch. Prosecutors estimate that Carmen was killed between 9 and 11 a.m. that Thursday. At 2.30 p.m., Carmen misses an appointment she has in Kansas City. November 14, 2003. At 1 p.m., Lima grows concerned that he cannot reach Carmen and calls police. Soon after, Douglas County Sheriff's deputies discover the body. That evening, deputies begin questioning Thomas. Thomas was interrogated for about 10 hours, waiving his rights to have an attorney present. The entire investigation is taped, either video or audio. His body is photographed for bruises and wounds. He makes voluntary written statements about his activities from the day before the murder up until he comes to the police station. Listeners, you know how it's very unusual for defense attorneys to put their clients on the stand. That's because it's almost never a good strategy. It almost never works out for the defense. Well, in this case, the prosecution virtually gets to put the defendant on the stand and have at him because they have 10 hours of him talking and talking and talking and incriminating himself. That's the crux of the entire prosecution case. And the tapes are very persuasive to anyone who thinks Murray is guilty. He comes across as arrogant and cold, but the worst part is that he keeps coming up with explanations for things which the police can't prove. And he lies about things that can be disproved. 
On the tape, you see that Thomas keeps his right hand in his lap or under his leg. Later, when detectives see a cut on the little finger of his right hand and bruises on his wrists, he explains that he cut his finger cutting a pineapple for his daughter. Although he initially could not remember where the bruises came from, he later figures out that he was bruised when he was playing with Helen that day and bouncing her on his knees. Friends and relatives will testify that they never saw father and daughter roughhousing. Helen was a very quiet, ladylike little girl who liked to play with dolls and read. Even though he shouldn't know any details of the crime, including when it happened, Dr. Murray immediately starts explaining to police in detail what he did the previous day and the day before that. He tells detectives they will find his DNA on the carpet of Carmen's living room. At about 10 p.m., the investigators point out to Thomas that he has not asked how Carmen died. The defendant says he did not want to know the details. Right, nobody ever wants to know the details about how their loved ones died. He signs a written consent for searches of his car and home and says, I'll tell you what you're going to find in the car. Then he explains that the detectives will find Carmen's blood and her fingerprints in the car. At this point, no one had told him that Carmen's death had been bloody or violent. He tells this long, convoluted tale of Carmen using his car to go to the drugstore and getting a nosebleed. His story is so detailed that it is child's play for the detectives to disprove it. Also, none of Carmen's friends or family ever recall her having a nosebleed. The defendant also consented to the search of his computers, both at home and at his office at Kansas State University. Big mistake. They will find lots of incriminating stuff in his browser history, much like you would if you looked at my browser history, actually, like how to hire an assassin, how to kill someone quickly and quietly, how to murder someone and not get caught, and a MapQuest search for a route to Carmen's house that avoids the turnpike to avoid toll booth cameras, presumably. Ironically, there are no cameras on the Kansas Turnpike. His lame excuse is that he's researching to write a TV script for CSI. Never mind, he's never mentioned this to anybody. There's no outline of a plot anywhere on his computers or in paper at his office or the house. And they can't find evidence of any research into how you would format or submit a script for a TV program. 
Although no one had told him how Carmen died, Thomas told the police he would never have done anything like they were suggesting, which they haven't suggested anything, because he was a, quote, thinking man. If he were going to commit a homicide, he would do it with an airborne poison or, quote, something really slick, unquote. Another murder tip. Don't try to be a funny guy when you're talking to the police. They have no sense of humor, especially when they're investigating the brutal beating and stabbing of innocent young mothers. After Murray finishes his detailed written statement, he tells detectives that something in the statement would cause them to look at it with a raised eyebrow. He then states that he forgot that he did drive on I-70 the previous morning to look at antique pillowcases in Paxico, which is a cute little town between Manhattan and Topeka with lots of antique stores. Antique pillowcases? Who knew that was a thing? This is an interest no one could ever say he had mentioned, and there were no antique linens at his house or even any publications about antiques. A little explanation of what might be going on in his head. He knows that he drove to Carmen's house after he dropped Helen off at the babysitters. He is supposed to have gone to his office to grade papers, although there's no evidence on his office computer that he did anything on his computer at all, while on most Thursdays, that he's in the office, he checks his email and sends some emails and does stuff on his computer. There's no evidence of that for that particular Thursday. He has no reason to be driving on I-70, but he did to get to Carmen's, which he can't admit to doing. Since he is afraid he's been caught on a turnpike, camera, which there aren't any cameras on the turnpike, he comes up with a really lame lie to explain why his car is caught on camera on I-70, which it isn't. So this was just a huge mistake. Later on in the interview, Thomas tells detectives that Carmen's blood will be in his house because Carmen had cut herself when trying to cut a piece of candy for Helen on Halloween. Amazing how this family just seems to be bleeding everywhere all the time. So he's now realized that he might have gotten Carmen's blood somewhere in his house after he got home from beating and stabbing her to death. So he wants to try to explain that. 
He also explains that his blood would be found in her downstairs bathroom because when he was at Carmen's home after mediation on the previous Tuesday, he had picked at a callus on his fingers and caused it to bleed. Keep in mind that he shouldn't even know that she was killed in her own house, much less that it was a bloody crime. They actually, although not conclusively, do find a drop of his blood at the house, but he had been to the house several times since she moved in, even helping her move some of her stuff in. Finding his hair or blood or DNA there would be perfectly natural. So why even mention it? Unless you're guilty. The detective then finally tells Thomas for the first time that Tom, that Carmen was murdered and what and where and how it happened. Thomas yammers on for a while about how shocked he is and something about really hoping it was a car accident and realizing it had to be a murder since he was being questioned. But listeners, it's too late to explain anything. He's already talked way too much. The prosecution hammers away at everything Thomas Murray voluntarily says to the police and paints a vivid picture of a totally guilty man, even without any convincing physical evidence. The defense gamely tries to attack what little physical evidence there is, and they pick away at the motive, trying to show that the defendant was moving on with his life and working things out with Carmen. They contend that the police were too focused on Thomas from the beginning and never even investigated other possibilities. And they have something of a point there. But the tapes are just too damning. The jury finds Dr. Thomas Murray guilty, and he is sentenced to life in prison for his ex-wife's murder. He appeals on the usual grounds of prosecutorial misconduct, Miranda issues, hearsay testimony, and my personal favorite, insufficiency of the evidence to support his conviction. No dice. In 2008, the Kansas Supreme Court affirms the conviction. In 2013, another, another kind of half-hearted appeal is also rejected. This is a sad story. A close family lost a beloved daughter and sister a little girl was deprived of her wonderful mother by a bitter, selfish man. In this case, we have a devastatingly mismatched couple. Looking back on what happened, there were so many chances for these two to just go their separate ways. Listeners, please don't think I'm blaming Carmen for her murder. Only Dr. Thomas Murray is to blame. 
However, I think the combination of her impulsiveness and his rigidity was toxic. If someone could go back in time and intervene, I think we would see Carmen happily pursuing her fifth or sixth career with probably her third or fourth husband. Thomas would be a minor professor emeritus at K-State, about to retire, probably happily single, writing his pedantic, boring to almost everybody, esoteric articles for minor academic publications, and no one would have been murdered. Unfortunately, Carmen made a lot of decisions considering only how it affected her. To me, she is a little spoiled and irresponsible sometimes. She goes to law school, and then after just a couple of years, decides that's not for her. Oops, I think I'll try something else. I believe that Thomas is controlling, as in wants things his way, but he does support Carmen through all this, even though I'm sure it's disappointing for him. He cares a lot about appearances, and having an accomplished wife would be a major prestige thing for him. That's important in university circles. I think he did just pretend to want children to get her to marry him. But when he adamantly tells her he doesn't want kids, that's the time to take off. Huge red flag. Still... Carmen decides to stay in the marriage for several more years. I haven't said much about Carmen's family, but they love her dearly, will do anything for her, and they have plenty of money. She has lots of choices and a great support system. Even though Carmen tells everybody she desperately wants children, she manages to not get pregnant for 12 years. Then I think she sees her biological clock running out and gets pregnant. Oopsie. A really bad move and kind of passive aggressive. Imagine if she just dumped him when he said he didn't want children or when he was mad at her for getting pregnant. She's a lawyer irreconcilable differences. Go live with mom and dad until you get your life on track. She might have married some nice guy and gone on to have as large a family as she wanted to, but no. She sticks around hoping somehow her husband will miraculously change after 18 years. That doesn't happen, although there was some adjusting to the situation on Thomas's part. He supports his wife and child financially and keeps up some appearance of doting fatherhood. But Carmen's not happy. She wants to help people. Okay, so get a divorce already. Go pursue whatever goofy career makes you happy. 
you're not one of those poor, beaten-up women trapped with no other option but to stay in a bad marriage. And most importantly, don't force your ex to make a choice between his child and his well-established career. He's a tenured professor at a major university, and said career has provided you with a pretty nice lifestyle. And certainly, please don't rub his nose in your new relationship. I get that it wasn't a happy marriage, but Carmen stayed in it for 18 years. And by the way, with all this mediation going on, why didn't someone bring up that Kansas judges routinely refuse to allow divorced parents to move children out of state. In this situation, I doubt seriously that Carmen would have been allowed to move Helen to California. Plus, the fiancé was moving to Lawrence, and he seems to be a very nice, accommodating kind of guy. Kansans often call Lawrence the Berkeley of the Plains because of its reputation for being kind of a hippy-dippy town. It's the home of the University of Kansas, which is the liberal Kansas University. Kansas State is more conservative. My guess is that a social worker and budding holistic healer Larry Lima and Carmen would have just thrived in Lawrence. If Thomas had just left well enough, enough alone just for a little while, I can picture a chilly but civilized relationship developing. If only that could have happened. Sadly, so many opportunities to avoid this tragedy were missed. What happened was that Carmen checked out of the marriage after 18 years and was oblivious to how her behavior was really pressing Thomas's buttons. He was so inflexible and incapable of relating to people emotionally that he let his frustration and bitterness and jealousy and anger fester and build up until murder was the only option he wanted to see. And he thought he was too smart to get caught. He wasn't. Thomas is serving his life sentence at El Dorado Correctional Facility. Yes, they pronounce it El Dorado. I called their city hall to check. If you take the turnpike down to Wichita, there's an exit for El Dorado, which is home to a large oil refinery, as well as the big prison where most death row inmates are in Kansas. The prison in El Dorado is also home to Dennis Rader, known as BTK, the Bind, Torture, Kill, Serial Killer. 
Marie is not eligible for parole until 2029, when he will be 73 years old. Carmen's daughter was adopted by one of her mother's sisters. She has changed her name and has no contact with her father. I posted the links to the sources used for this episode in the show notes. Author and attorney Robert Beatty wrote the definitive book on this case, Language of Evil. I highly recommend it. It's a very good read. It's available on Amazon. Interestingly, you can also find Dr. Thomas Murray's scholarly works online, like The Language of Sadomasochism, available on Amazon for only $38 plus free shipping. For newspaper reports, I use the Lawrence Journal World and the Manhattan Mercury. 48 Hours and a couple of other true crime TV series covered the case. I remember watching the 48 Hours episode when it came out not too long after the trial. It was very good. The family and police cooperated with them, and they even got to put cameras in the courtroom for the trial. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Even critical feedback is much appreciated and probably deserved. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, Please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.